may be around the world, and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Boy. It's been a long time, Jono. It's been a really long time. I've missed you a lot. I'm glad you're back. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, we had a lot of holidays in between and lots of summertime or wintertime with you. It's nice to be back. And uh, yes, we have had a break. Uh, we had a break after we, uh, well, we did investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies, 365 of them in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. We asked if indeed the passage in question was a messianic prophecy, and if so, did Jesus fit the bill? And in the end, we handed down our verdict. Michael, what was that? I think the verdict was that neither of us are going to take out membership in the local Baptist church. When you were on holidays just recently, you didn't sneak into a, a Sunday service, did you? Only at my local synagogue. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we, we weren't convinced. In fact, we were far from convinced. Now, there were just to bring people uh, back up to speed with, with what we did, of course, all of these programs are available uh, to listen to on truth2u.org. You'll see it on the, the top menu bar. Uh, you can listen to them chronologically. And uh, I don't know how many programs we did. We did over, I don't know, over 30 programs, I think it was, uh, for people to listen to. But we did touch on uh, this list fairly comprehensively. Uh, and there were a number of common, uh, let's say, a number of common hermeneutic misfires, I think. Is, is, is that a fair way to uh, put them? That might be a good way of putting it, yeah. I think that's kind. Let's leave it at that. But maybe you could uh, outline a few of those for us. We actually, you know, after doing so many programs and going through, I think we didn't go through 365. I think that we ended up switching to a, an abbreviated list of 303, I think it was. We used a uh, the new revised standard version by Carmen Welker. Now, now that you've mentioned that, uh, Carmen, the, the Truth To You, uh, official Truth To You critic, or was then, I think she's retired since, she did feature this uh, this very list on her website. When you and I began, we were actually using it, we were, we were looking at another website, weren't we? We were taking this list from that web, and this this list is all over the all over the web. A lot of people are using it, they just take it, they cut it, they, they paste it on their website, and there it is. She was one of those. And at some stage during our uh, endeavor, she decided to engage with us uh, in an attacking sort of a way because she obviously believes in this list. And I then kind of engaged with Carmen and uh, it was fun. There was a bit of jostling back and forth. But in that, she realized uh, that there was a lot of doubling up uh, and her and her husband, Bill, of the refinersfire.org, decided, well, uh, we, we better refine <laughs> this list. They put it through the, the refiners fire. They came out with a new revised standard version, which was almost uh, 60 less uh, than, than what was on the original list. So they culled it somewhat. You and I both agreed they could have culled it a lot more, but that was the list that we ended up going by. Yeah, I think the first thing I wanted to mention was that even with the shortened list that we studied, there was a lot of double billing and triple billing and quadruple billing. <laughs> um, so, for example, uh, Genesis 49.10, they were able to squeeze five of their prophecies out of that one verse. Um, Isaiah 9, chapter 6, uh, chapter 6, chapter 9, verse 6, they squeezed six prophecies, meaning that here you had one verse, which they were able to count six times. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 3, they counted four times, four prophecies. Um, and there, there are many times in the Tanakh, I mean, many places where the Tanakh tells us that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Um, and they counted each one of those. Um, hmm. So, for example, you know, if we're going to put together a list of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and let's say for argument's sake, we wanted to say that he fulfilled the requirement that the Messiah be a descendant of David, that would be one prophecy that he fulfilled. And when they cite uh, numerous verses that basically say that, so what's happening is you're taking one fulfillment, but you're counting it, uh, you know, numerous times. So really what happens with all this double, triple, and quadruple billing is that a list which is up to 303, you know, could 
very well be reduced just because of this one problematic hermeneutic. You know, I'm yeah. not sure how many would, would lower it by. But I, I want to just say why this is significant. Uh, now, uh, that, because that is the question. There was, a, there was an enormous amount of repetition. Uh, we were constantly reminding the, the listeners that uh, we've looked at this one, we've looked at that one, let's move on. And, uh, and I think, before, before you give your reason, just off the top of my head, I know that the, um, through our Christendom, having, being, being one who, was, who grew up in the church, uh, Michael, the, the number, the magic number 300, oh, about 300, over 300, you would often hear, over 300 prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Oh, well, if there's over 300, we don't even need to look and see what they are, because if there's over 300, even if only 50 of them are true, so the, this, this figure would be, would be tossed around. Now, 365 is even more impressive. Why? Because there's 365 days in a year, Michael. This is ordained. This is, this is divinely ordained. There should, there should be one prophecy every day of the year that Jesus fulfilled. It's a nice, neat number, and it's, uh, it's a good one to throw on your website, Michael. Well, I guess the 303 number is... I guess. Uh, you well, three hundred and three still still fits with the others oh, over three hundred. A lot of, sort of a lot of vacation days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But I think what I'm going to try to show is that you know because I, I mean there are really dozens of what I would call these hermeneutic blunders, and mm. I think personally that at the end of the day there were maybe a dozen or two dozen at most passages that really needed to be addressed, meaning that. Um, and I think I said in the introduction to the whole series, most of these are like cotton candy. You know, you start, you start to bite into it and it disappears. There's nothing there. Um, mm. I mean, it, the, there's almost no foundation to the vast majority of these. And so really what should be a list of, you know, 20, approximately 25 passages that, you know, I think well, no. deserve some analysis – yeah, it, even bloated. even our friend even our friend Carmen agreed with that. She said, you know, this is our list, but if you really want a list that you can sink your teeth into, well, we have this, you know, we have this list of what was it, forty eight? I think she 48, had forty eight. Yes, forty eight. I, 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 I would knock the forty eight down by about half. Yes. And so, so what you have really is instead of twenty or twenty five verses that really need to be discussed. I think that, you know they're they're, I think you know. Um, claims that needed to be addressed you have a very bloated list of 303 or 365 and i think the reason it's significant um is because it's it's meant to that large number it's meant to impact the listener meaning um you know there's a there's a popular form of they say that it's it's a technology for excellence sometimes it's even used for therapeutic purposes um, but usually, this is called a technology for excellence. It's called neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that NLP proposes is something they call a five-minute phobia cure, that they're able to cure people of phobias in about five minutes. And oh, really? they, they use something, I think they call it the, the manipulation of submodalities. And basically, this is the way it works. Um, they'll have someone go back to, let's say, a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say when they were six years old, that you know they they were encountered a by in the a, yeah, or... a huge dog. You know, met them on the yep. street and started barking really loud, and the kid was traumatized. And now, you know, they're a thirty year year old that's afraid of dogs. Mm-hmm. So what they may do in one of these five minute sessions is they might take the person back to that original experience and and say, let's. Let's put it up on a screen. Let's, you're going to look at it the way you experienced this event. And you might have the person saying, you know, I see this dog. You know, it's on a big screen about five feet in front of me. You know, and they'll ask, how big is the screen? Oh, it's the size of the wall of a, of a room. You know, it's 12 by 12 feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and is, it in, is it black and white or it's, it's in full color? And, you know, and how loud is the dog? And, oh, it's, it's you know, 150 decibels. And, you know, the, they, they really see this as an experience that's larger than life. And what the therapist will do, or the practitioner here, is to basically mess around with the controls. And they'll say, let's take the screen. And instead of making it a screen that looks like the size of a wall, 
you know, make it the, a screen the size of uh, a, a book or, uh, you know, uh, someone's tablet. You know, so now mm-hmm. instead of looking at a, a screen the size of a movie theater screen, you're looking at a screen, you know, that's, you know, seven by eight inches. Um, they might say instead of having it five or six inches in front of you, push it back about 10 feet. So now you're looking at it from further away. And they'll say, now turn it from full color to black and white. And then they'll mess around with the sound. So um, in, instead of having, let's say, a very loud 110 decibel barking dog, they might lower the sound a bit. And instead of having the pitch very, very deep, they may make the dog say, imagine it's barking with a very squeaky kind of voice. So mm-hmm. you imagine that now when the person is asked to look at this experience, they're looking at a tiny dog that's got a very high-pitched squeaky bark you know, it's and you know they'll say, "Well, how does it? How does this feel?" And the person's now totally unintimidated because the experience has been basically reframed. And so, what happens is, when the dog was, you know, a huge monster on a big screen, that can have a huge impact. When it's a tiny little runt on a little teeny mm. surface, it doesn't really have that kind of impact. And I think that there is a, a huge benefit to being able to, you know, amplify this list as much as possible to over 300. And I think that, you know, if we could say, well, the truth of the matter is the list really by all rights should be 20 or 25 pa- passages that we look at. So I think that there's, a, there's an important um, – it's not just playing with numbers. I think the numbers are significant in the impact they're able to have. So, so I'm just thinking of all the people who have now been cured of their fear of dogs, and that's, that's, a, that's a freebie. You weren't expecting that. So you can't change the reality, but you can sort of reframe it a bit. Right. So that was one thing I wanted to point out is that – and we, we did see a lot of this double dipping and double billing. Um, another thing that happened frequently was that they would transform narrative portions of the Bible into prophecy, meaning that – there were passages that when we would read them in the Tanakh, they were not prophecies. Mm. They were narratives. They were stories. But because the story had some similarity to the conception. A connection, to use, to use their own, uh, to use Carmen's language, a yeah. connection. And that connection might be a theme, a phrase, a word exactly. uh, in common. An yeah. illusion, you know, mm-hmm. type, shadows, etc. Etc. Um, so, uh, an example would be, let's say, Genesis fourteen eighteen, which on our list, it says it was the Last Supper foreshadowed. So, all you have in this story was Malchitzedek, you know, bringing out bread and wine, I think, uh, you know, as gifts to Abraham, I think mm. that's what was happening. So, the story is basically a story where this person in Genesis, you know, brings out bread and wine you know, that gets transformed into a prophecy about uh, the Eucharist, about the Mm. Last Supper, about, you know, something which really has no connection to, and again, anyone reading the text would not see it as a prophecy. It's not expressed as a prophecy, but it's transformed by the list maker into a prophecy. Mm. Um, A third thing that we experienced was that there were many passages on the list that were simply passages about the creator of the world, the Almighty, the Tetragrammaton. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the list maker assumes that Jesus is God, that's again an assumption that the list maker has. Um, the assumption is, therefore, that any passage in the Tanakh about God must uh, ipso facto be about Jesus. Um, so, for example, in our list, they quoted Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, where, you know, Moses is asking God his name, and God says in Hebrew, Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh, which probably the best translation would be, I will be what I will be. Um, the list maker sort of takes a typical Christian um, poor translation of this and says it's it really should be, I am uh, who I am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that becomes... Uh, again, a forecast of Jesus who, in response to some questions, says, I am. Um, and so there, God's saying to Moses, um, let's, just, let's just mistranslate what God said to Moses. So when God says to Moses in, in response to the question, what's your name? And God says, I am what I am. 
that becomes a reference to Jesus, fulfilled prophecy, mm. because they assume Jesus is God. Or in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, uh, um, where the list maker says that this passage speaks about the character of the Messiah being one of holiness. Now, in that passage, Exodus 15, it says, kodesh, that God is um, adorned with holiness. It's speaking about the Almighty. It was, it was God who took the Jewish people through the Red Sea. And in the song at the sea, they say about God's character, that his character is one of holiness. But the list maker, again, says, well, that's fulfilled by Jesus because, um, you know, Jesus, his character is one of holiness as well. And so this passage in the Tanakh, which is about the Almighty, the Creator, becomes a reference to Jesus because of the equation in the mind of the list maker that Jesus is God. Or mm. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, which the list maker says that his character is merciful. Again, that's a passage in uh, Exodus 33 about the Almighty, the Creator. But the list maker simply, uh, by sleight of hand, says, no, it's really speaking about Jesus, because, of course, Jesus in his mind is God. Uh, and the same thing happens in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, where the verse says, behold, you're God. And again, that's taken as a reference to Jesus. Now, my critique of this would be that if the list maker is simply making the identification of God in the Tanakh with Jesus, so why stop at the number of passages that they did this with, meaning that I think the list maker may have had a dozen or so passages where they simply, um, you know, substituted Jesus for God in in these alleged fulfillment prophecies. But if once we're making the substitution that passages in the Tanakh about God are taken as references to Jesus, so you could easily have thousands and thousands of mm. items on this list that refer to Jesus because the Tanakh has thousands and thousands of things that it says about God. Um, so I just wonder why the list maker uh, you know, sort of deprives themselves uh, here of all these potential references. But mm. that was one thing we saw on the list, that they would take passages that are clearly about the Creator and they simply apply them to Jesus. Uh, a fourth thing that I noticed, that we noticed, is that they, they list uh, as part of the uh, prophecies that they claim prove that Jesus is the Messiah, they list uh, things that really could apply to half the free world. Meaning that, right. <laughs> you know, a, a prophecy is only meaningful when, you know, you only have one candidate for the fulfillment. Mm. You know, uh, you know, if you say, for example, that um, you know the Messiah is going to have a body, a head, you know, right. it's, oh look, Jesus has a body and a head. So, mazel tov. <laughs> you know, I don't know anyone who doesn't. So, you know, you have, for example, they on our list, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, which speaks about you know the 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 person being thirsty, and mm -hmm. so if the person in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen is thirsty. And we know that Jesus on the cross was thirsty. Um, you know that somehow becomes a prophecy. But the truth is, I think that I don't. I, I can't imagine anyone on the planet who, during their lifetime, didn't become thirsty. Some people become mm -hmm. thirsty every day. Um, Psalm forty-one verse nine speaks about someone who was betrayed by a close friend that they ate with. Well, I, I think most people I know have been let turned down, let down, disappointed, betrayed by close friends that they had eaten with. Um, Isaiah 42.3 says that the, he, the list maker says that the Messiah would have compassion for the poor and needy. Every single person I know, you know, all of my friends have mm -hmm. compassion for the poor and needy. Uh, Zechariah 9.9, the list maker says the Messiah would be humble. I mean, there are many, many people that are humble. So it, it's sort of meaningless to uh, trumpet a fulfilled prophecy when, you know, it, it's, it's not an unusual thing for a person to fulfill that prophecy. Like saying, you know, the Messiah is supposed to have a kidney and ten toes. Oh, look, um, I think Jesus had a kidney and ten toes. Uh, two kidneys at that. Um, so that's the fourth category that they, they, they list here on this list of 303 prophecies, um, things that are, are meaningless simply because they're fulfilled generally uh, by you know numerous numerous people. Mm. Uh, another thing that we actually saw that we really I think we were amused by this was the fixation they had with the word seed. 
Um, yes. And, and usually what they would do is they would confuse the Hebrew word for seed, zera. Mm-hmm. They would confuse it as a reference to one particular person. So, mm-hmm. for example, on the list, they have Genesis 22.18, and the list maker says that Isaac's descendant, in the singular, Isaac's descendant will bless all nations. Um, the actual verse is a reference to Isaac's descendants, you know, the nation that will come out of Isaac, because mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible, the word Zerah, seed, always refers to, uh, you know, the totality of a person's progeny and their descendants, mm-hmm. in the plural, never refers to one particular uh, descendant. Um, and the same thing came up numerous times, I think also in Genesis 26, verses 2 to 5, um, you know, they, they simply take a reference in the scriptures that applies to all of the descendants of Isaac, and mm-hmm. the list maker narrows it down to one person. Um, the sixth thing I wanted to point out, and this really was, was almost on every page, um, that they would seize upon passages that would never be seen as a messianic prophecy, messianic prophecy. Mm. or even prophetic um, by anyone. I, I, I'll give my, my, my I think, I take this as a model, you know, a person that was able to read Hebrew or maybe the Bible in English translation that came from Mars. So you had a Martian that was fluent in Hebrew. Um, you know, if they were to come down and read the Bible, the Tanakh, there's no way in the world they would take um, many of these uh, alleged and, prophecies. And to be fair, and to be fair, even uh, most uh, Christian scholars worth their salt would never identify these. Uh, they'd be laugh- laughed out of a out of a, uh, a university classroom if they if they were to propose such a thing. Uh, and yet, this list was riddled with such examples. And we did that, by the way. We I think every. Every evening we met. Oh, you consulted uh, John MacArthur. That's right. And 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 uh, the, my open Bible, and you know, the, 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 I, I, I many many times found mm. passages. You know, the open Bible was very liberal in in, in qualifying something mm. as a messianic prophecy, and yet there were many things on this list that we went through that even the open Bible didn't award a black star. Uh, of messianic prophecy too, mm-hmm. and sure. you know we we mentioned many commentaries to the New Testament to the yes. Tanakh, written by Christians that said no, these are not messianic prophecies. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was really probably one of the major fault lines in this list is that they simply were seizing upon passages that no reasonable person would ever understand to be a messianic prophecy. Now let's- let me be. Uh, let me just hone in on what you just said. No reasonable person. What does it say about uh, a person who sees things that no one else sees? There's a, uh, a. You've heard about the Bible code, for example. There's what might be uh, a similarity of words. They're no longer a coincidence, even though the Christian authorities, the scholars of Christianity, say, "Oh no, of course not. This is not even related. This is not a messianic prophecy." But this person, they know better. They see that there's a divine code here, and uh, with their secret knowledge, they are able to say, put it on the list. What does it say about a person like that, Michael? I, I think that you know when people become aware of the methodological flaw in what they're doing, I think they um, come to appreciate the problem, meaning that you know, we we saw that the the, the what what's behind this is a, a drive to use the Tanakh as a means of proving an already held belief. Um, so, you know, normally when you're trying to prove something, you have to move from point A to point B. I mean, that you don't begin with your conclusion and then go backwards. That that's not the way proofs work. Um, and I think that the the problem is that the list maker and people that adhere to lists like this, they're not unintelligent people. They just don't appreciate the flaw in the methodology of what they're doing. Because again, because of their great love for Jesus and because of their tremendous belief that he is the Messiah, um, they do work backwards. They do, uh, you know, go back, and they're assuming that again, if you know, if he is the Messiah, and again, their faith in him as the Messiah is basically 
founded upon the New Testament and the, the claims of the New Testament. But once that becomes an established truth in their mind, then it's reasonable from their point of view to say, well, there must be allusions to that, there must be hints, and there must be forecastings of that in the Tanakh. And so they are able to go back to the Tanakh and find things which in, this, in their minds are compelling. And I think that all they need, would, need to do would be to step back and to realize, but let's, you know, if, if we're going to talk about proving things, we're going to talk about evidence, it has to be something that's evidence and proof to someone who's not already invested in the belief from the get-go. I mean, you'd have to take your local neighborhood Martian who doesn't know about Judaism, doesn't know about Christianity, and have them read the Tanakh without access to the New Testament mm-hmm. and and see if it would be compelling to them. And I, I think that the the um, you know the antidote that I proposed is that we simply ask people to try to understand how a particular scripture would have been understood before uh, Jesus came to this mm. world. Meaning that, obviously, uh, let's say, for example, we mentioned before um, Psalm 41, which speaks about someone being betrayed by a close friend. So, obviously, once someone already believes in Jesus and already has the story of his betrayal by Judas Iscariot in their mind, it's very understandable how they could go back to that chapter in Psalms and see the verse which speaks about behold my close friend whom I trusted and, and we, we, mm-hmm. he ate bread with me he's lifted up his heel against me and they can say oh this seems to be a, you know has a lot similar it's very similar it sounds very much like the story of Jesus being betrayed by his friend Judas Iscariot and so then that, that, that's what makes it into a messianic prophecy that similarity but the reality is that that verse in Psalms had to have some meaning before Jesus. Mm. So the question to ask these people is, uh, imagine, let's do a thought experiment. Imagine you were someone reading this verse in the book of Psalms a hundred years before Jesus. And then to ask them, why would you have thought that this passage was about the Messiah? And now they're not able to, well, it's hard for them to disengage from their beliefs, but if they're able to really go through with the thought experiment properly, they would realize there is no reason that any person would have seen this passage as a messianic prophecy prior Mm. to Jesus. Um, So I I think that it's not that these are people who are not uh, bright and can't think. I think that because, you know, the Talmud says something interesting. The Talmud says, Ahava mekalkel etashura. Love is able to uh, basically make things crooked, meaning love is blind. And mm-hmm. if someone has tremendous love for Jesus to the extent where they're looking to find him everywhere they can, so they're often not able to pull themselves out of this trap and say, well, let's try to approach the Bible without this preconceived mm-hmm. belief, right? Let's try to go from uh, you know Genesis forward and not read back into Genesis already having committed myself to mm-hmm. the New Testament claims. Um, you know, and look, <laughs> I meet people every day that have done that. You know, I, I meet Christians all the time that tell me, you know, they, they sort of got it one day. They realized they've been reading the Bible with Jesus' glasses on. They've been mm-hmm. reading the Bible, uh, you know, with a sort of a preconceived slant and an agenda where it was easy to find Jesus. And once they took off those Jesus glasses and once they stepped back and said to themselves, I want to try to understand uh, yes. Exodus and, and mm. Psalms. In the that, context of, of which it was written. Yeah, before Jesus, that's all. Mm. And so, but what I'm saying is that, and then and, and their, their eyes are open, obviously, but uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is if an individual goes far and beyond that which uh, uh, historical Christian scholars have at least proposed and said, well, this is the list that we think is safe, that, that uh, we'd like to suggest are messianic prophecies. But they go far beyond that because they see things in the text that the, uh, the Christian scholars don't see. Does this not lend itself, and I know we're getting off the topic a little bit, but does this not lend itself to a form of Gnosticism? Can I say that? 
You could say it. <laughs> I wouldn't have said it, but I, I'm willing to bet that there were probably quite a few that we uh, touched on that you had never come across before. Is that would that be fair? Actually, I have gone through a similar list uh, maybe 25 years ago. Um, quickly, I didn't go through it with you know any kind of depth, so I, I sort of quickly went through a list of over 300. So I probably did see, you know, uh, all of these, but I never really spent the time to, uh, you know, in any detail go through them one by one. Uh, so I was, I, I was quite surprised by some of them. I mean, some of them mm. really did seem to be totally out to lunch. Um, mm. And I, I think that, uh, I think that even many Christians would have had a hard time connecting those passages in the mm. Hebrew scriptures to Jesus. I think they really would have scratched their head yeah. and said, I don't see, where, where are they getting this from? Mm. Um, I, so I think that really, that that's why the list really, to be honest, should have been cut down uh, drastically, should have been knocked down by, by you know. It, it, it should have been because it does itself a disservice to any Christian who actually approaches this list with an intent to uh, do the study. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, look, I think that, you know, there are passages like Daniel chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 53 and Zechariah chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 9 and Psalm 22. You know, there were a dozen or so passages that… You could sink your teeth into. And I think that really raised serious questions and that, Mm -hmm. you know, deserved serious study. But I would say that about 90% of the items on this list were basically uh, off the wall, you know, mm. and I think that I think that many Christians, you know, if they were to go to the list, would say, where are they getting this from? Uh, you know, I'll just share a few examples. Sure. Uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, right? There it speaks about how the altar, um, God says, if you're going to build an altar to bring sacrifices, it has to be made out of earth, mm-hmm. um, and it couldn't be cut with a steel blade. Um, so the list maker says, an altar needs only to be of earth. Okay. <laughs> and I think the question is, what in the world does it have to do with Jesus fulfilling prophecy? Hmm. Um, you know, or Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Um, Cursed is he that hangs on a tree. Now, we know that in the, the Tanakh, we're told that if someone is executed by the court... They were not allowed to uh, – actually, the court would actually hang them on a tree. People that were executed by the court, they were public, publicly displayed mm. uh, on a tree. They were ha- hung up somewhere, um, but they were taken down overnight. They were not mm. let to hang up. They were not allowed to hang overnight. Um, and so the, the body the, – the Tanakh speaks about it being a terrible – uh, Curse upon you know, the land, and it, it's a it's a disgrace to the per, to the body to the human body mm. created in the image of God. Mm. Um, so, what does it have to do with Jesus um, or Ruth chapter four verses four to six? That the list maker says the right of redemption comes through our kinsmen. Mm. Um, you know, anyone reading the book of Ruth would read a story of uh, <clears throat> a woman who was widowed and has to go through possible Leverite marriage with, you know, it's a whole story which, you know, is a, is a human drama mm. that has absolutely nothing to do with a prophecy about Jesus. Mm. And I think that, you know, when we go through the list, uh, I think there were, you know, I, I think at least a hundred that would have fit this bill that... Uh, I think that the, an average Christian would scratch their head and say, I don't know where in the world the list maker got this from, where they're heading with this, what, they're, what they have in mind. Um, so quite a few of the, of the items on this list were really just simply, um, you know, someone with an overactive imagination, uh, you know, trying to find, you know, what to them at least seemed like a, an illusion. Uh, and sometimes it was quite a stretch. It was quite. A, it certainly seemed to us to be a scraping of the bottom of the barrel. Uh, the major uh, crime, really, was that we found that these were passages being quoted out of context, um, meaning that when we read these passages on the list back in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, without a preconceived 
uh, agenda, mm. um, we see that they have nothing to do with uh, Jesus or nothing to do with the Messiah at all. For example, in Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, the list maker says that <clears throat> this is his humiliation and exaltation, meaning his, the Messiah's, humiliation and exaltation. Now, anyone reading Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 to 6, will quickly see that it's a description of mankind in general. It's describing humankind, mankind. It's not a passage that's specifically describing the Messiah. And so here, basically, you have a passage which, in its original context, is not a messianic prophecy. It's a description of mankind. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it's transformed by the list maker into a messianic prophecy. Um, one of the things that we did see occasionally was that the list maker either stumbled upon or somehow uh, naively quoted actual messianic prophecies. Um, you know, <laughs> I think there were a dozen or so passages where the list maker, uh, you know, quotes them as fulfilled prophecy when the truth is that they were not fulfilled. Mm. Um, for example, they listed in the, our list chapter 11 of Isaiah, which speaks about a time when there'll be no more war in the world and everyone's going to lie down mm. in peace together. I mean, clearly that hasn't happened yet. And so what happens when the list maker stumbles upon these actual messianic prophecies is that they're forced to say, well, Jesus will fulfill these at his when second coming. Yeah. But of course, that, that sort of shoots them in the foot because the list maker is saying that these are prophecies fulfilled by Jesus already. And, and mm. you know, when you have to basically take all the actual, legitimate, bona fide messianic prophecies and say, well, Jesus didn't actually fulfill them. It will happen upon his second coming. So that already is its an embarrassment because what really what they're saying is that Jesus did not fulfill the messianic hmm. prophecies. You know, to have to propose that he'll only do so at his second coming is an admission that he didn't do so at his first coming. That's right. Um, but there were a number of passages. So, for example, Isaiah chapter 11 Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel chapter 37. You know, there were a number of real bona fide messianic prophecies, which the list maker, I, I guess maybe it would be embarrassing not to mention those. So they made it to the list, but they were not fulfilled. And, uh, you know, so they have to appeal to this idea of the second coming. And finally, um, and this again is something which is rife throughout the entire list, is that the, the methodology is based upon circular reasoning. Um, meaning that it only works, the argument only works because the New Testament says so. Uh, so let's give it an example, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. So there, the list maker says that the Messiah would be God's servant. And the truth is that in studying chapter 42 of Isaiah, it's not entirely clear if that chapter is speaking about the nation of Israel or it's a passage about the Messiah himself. But if we take the uh, explanation, we take the interpretation that Isaiah 42.1 is about the Messiah, and it's saying that the Messiah would be God's servant, so we could agree to that. Um, the question is, how do we know that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy? And so it only works if you accept the conclusion of the New Testament that Jesus was the Messiah who's God's servant. Mm. So when you have basically a prophecy that only works um, if you already accept the conclusion of the New Testament uh, and you accept that conclusion before studying the Hebrew Scriptures, um, that's what we would call circular reasoning, meaning it only works if you assume at the outset the conclusion of the Christian point of view. Um, you can't get from Isaiah 42 to Jesus. You can certainly get from Jesus back to Isaiah 42, um, again, that's, as we said, it's, it's shooting your arrow and drawing the target around it. And then drawing the target around it. So just further to your second last point, perhaps, uh, another quirky thing that I found about this, uh, this list is that there were, uh, we know of, of uh, passages in the Tanakh that deal specifically with the king of the Messianic era, the Messiah, 
that are not in the list, they're avoided because they're inconvenient. And we, we did encounter that a number of times. We, we were going along because, of course, the list is in uh, uh, chronological order, or at least as far as the listings of the, of the books are concerned in the Christian Bible. And every now and then it would jump over a passage where we go, hang on a second, why is, it, <laughs> is this not mentioned? For example, the latter chapters of Ezekiel. Now, that uh, brings us to the question, the question does remain, how many then, Michael, how many specific passages are there in the Tanakh that, that deal directly with the prophesied king of Israel that presides during what is commonly referred to as the Messianic era? Is there, if, if we were to write a list from a, from a Jewish perspective, would we have 365? What would that list look like? So I think it's important to, uh, we have to be honest here, um, there really, what we don't have in the Tanakh is the kind of pinpoint clarity that would make it so clear you couldn't have an alternate point of view. Um, meaning that what we don't have in the Tanakh is a direct reference to anyone who is actually called the Messiah. And that's very important to appreciate. Um, you know, I think that we wouldn't have 2,000 years of Jews and Christians arguing if the Bible would have been clear to that extent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why there has been this ongoing debate between Judaism and Christianity is that you cannot go to a concordance and look up, you know, in the concordance the word the Messiah and find, you know, 10, 20, 30 references that would basically be a slam dunk end of discussion let's go home and you know have mm-hmm. something dessert um, so that's really something we have to appreciate that there is no direct reference to someone who is called the messiah as a matter of fact the term itself doesn't appear in the tanakh which really i think would be somewhat embarrassing to christianity because Christianity is a religion whose foundation is the identification Mm. and a sort of affiliation with the Messiah, meaning that Christianity means we are all about the Christ, the Messiah. Um, And so in Christianity, the Messiah is the very, very most important, central, critical concept in the entire religion. And I think that it's embarrassing that for a religion whose number one most important central focused concept is the Messiah, they're not able to produce one verse in the Hebrew scriptures that says anything directly about someone that's called the Messiah. Mm. Um, But let's at least take uh, appreciate that. Now, what we do find... Uh, I'll try and do this like a, a mathematical proof. Uh, some, I, I wasn't good in math in school, but I sometimes think mathematically. Sure. So what we do have in, in the Bible, which is clear, is, uh, and again, I'm going to try to make believe um, uh, seeing the Bible through the eyes of this make-believe Martian who's able to read Hebrew or England <laughs> or some other language they <laughs> you, can get their hands on. You have on. the ability to do that. Go for it. I, I see this Martian very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, what is the Martian going to find? So, they're going to see that uh, in, the, in the Bible, in the Tanakh, there are people who are referred to as anointed ones. Um, now, again, just in terms of the nomenclature, the terminology, it's important to understand that the word that Christians use, Christ, is simply, you know, the Greek. equivalent, the, hmm. the equivalent of Christos. It's the equivalent of Mashiach. Yeah. Um, and Mashiach would be, you know, said the anglicized way of saying that would be Messiah. So what you do have are references to people in the Tanakh who are messiahs. They are anointed ones. They are Christs. Um, So what we find is um, the first reference is to the high priest. Mm -hmm. So you find the beginning of the book of Leviticus, you have a number of references to Aaron Mm -hmm. uh, and to the high priests who will descend from Aaron. Um, and he is anointed, and as someone that is anointed, uh, he is called an anointed one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you have this matter of fact. This is the only place actually where you'll find the word Hamashiach with the definite article the Messiah. There are 
four references to the high priest in the beginning of the book of Leviticus. I think the difference I, is, though, is that it's, it's talking about the high priest generically, not the high priest, uh, priest as a specific person, right? Right. But again, it's not the Messiah. That's what I wanted mm. to point out. Right. But as, right. a, as an anointed one, as a uh, Messiah, generic kind of Messiah, so the only time that the Bible ever has the word Messiah with an article, meaning the Messiah, HaMashiach, not mm-hmm. just Mashiach, but HaMashiach, are the four references to Aaron and yes. the high priests in, I think, ch- chapters 5 and 6 in Leviticus. Yes. Um, but there you have the, you'd be able to say, oh, here's a Messiah. Here's a Messiah, right? The high priests. Then you have, um, later on, starting in the book of Samuel, you mm. have the anointing of people as kings of Israel. So you have first Shaul, Saul, then you have David, then you have Solomon. Mm. So you have the anointing, not just of priests in the Bible, where a priest would be called an anointed one, a Messiah, but you have the anointing of kings, and so a king uh, will be called Messiah. I think, think now, just because you mentioned, of course, that begins in Samuel, I think you and I have to do a program on that, because Samuel chapter 8, and I won't get into it now because it's getting off the topic, but uh, the people came to Samuel and said, uh, in, what is it, First Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, they said, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations, which is uh, very much in the same tone, uh, it appears to me, as uh, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, the golden calf. I would love to do a program on that with you because this is so significant, I guess, to what we're talking about here. Uh, but we may do that in the future. I'll let you continue. Yeah, so here you, you have that second uh, personality, let's call it. The kings could be called uh, messiahs. And then there were a couple of times when you'll see um, someone would be anointed as a prophet. Um, that comes up in the book of Kings. I think it comes up yes. once in the book of Isaiah. So but Not all prophets, right? Not all prophets. No, but, but you, you prophets, do have yeah. at least, you know, you'll find references to a prophet who is anointed and who would therefore be an anointed one, the Messiah, Christ. Mm. So that we have, that's just clear from reading the Bible, that there were people that were, their office was an office where they were inaugurated into the service of God by being anointed with oil, mm. and they would be called an anointed one, a, a Messiah. It sounds funny to, to say a Christ, right? If mm. you're going to mm. say that, that uh, Aaron was a Christ, Aaron was a Messiah, Aaron was an anointed one, and Shaul, Saul, and David were messiahs or Christs. I mean, that's exactly what the Bible speaks about. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. This is just, uh, there's no disputing this. Now, the question is that all these have been references to historical uh, characters, meaning that what I've pointed out so far are people in history who were anointed and who could be called a messiah. But the $64,000 question is, does the Bible, uh, in terms of its own context, ever speak about some future Messiah? That's the question. Is there you know any? what? I think it does once. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say it? Yeah, please. I think it does once. Uh, there is actually a prophecy uh, which is fulfilled. We read about it in Isaiah, and we and it seems to come to fruition in the book of Daniel. But there is... a an anomaly, I suppose it is, where an individual is prophesied to be a messiah, and it turns out to be a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. Okay. <laughs> is that fair? That's certainly fair. But right. again, he, he he is still a historical character, meaning yes. that in the context He's of the Bible, on. from the perspective of the Bible, right? These are all, every instance that we find of an anointed one, a messiah, they're all, all historical characters. And the question is, does the Bible ever speak about someone who is to come in the future? Meaning someone that, let's say, could be living in our time right now. So, what you do find is, and again, this is where it goes from 1,000% clear to 999% clear. Mm. What you do find is that the Tanakh speaks about, uh, in about a dozen places, a descendant of David who will be the king of the Jewish people in the future. Let me just let me just yeah. repeat what you just said, <laughs> because you, if I if I heard you correctly, you said 
in about a dozen places. We're yes. in, in roundabout, in, we're talking about 12 odd references, only 12. We're not talking about a, a list of 365 and we're, we're not just looking at the Torah, we're looking at the Tanakh as a whole. You're telling me that only about 12 references that deal specifically with the person uh, of the descendant of David that is to be the, the king in the Messianic era. Yes. Aye. <laughs> that's, it gets better, though. <laughs> Although, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, that's it, it, not s- such a paltry number, meaning that what, what is significant is that there are about a dozen um, that really emerge from the Bible as a whole, meaning that mm-hmm. we'll find that they appear uh, in quite a few books of the Bible. And so there is some organic consistency to the description of this person who will come in the future. Um, the Bible never calls this personality a Messiah. Um, what we're told again is that there will, will be a king from the line of David who will rule as the king of Israel um, in the future. And the Bible, what the, the Bible spends a lot of time doing is describing, is painting for us what this future will look like. And that's why I said it gets better than just these 12 verses, because what we also find in the Tanakh are hundreds of passages that are very, very consistently painting the picture of what this future world will look like. And I always say this, but it's very important to remember that the focus of the Tanakh is not on the person of the Messiah. The focus of the Tanakh is on what the world will look like when he's here. Mm. So what you really have is, in the Bible, hundreds of passages that describe a utopian world, a world that will be very different than the world that um, we've been living in for the past Mm. 4,000 years. Um, You know, the Bible begins with the, the paradise, with utopia, with the Garden of Eden. And human history basically has been a history of being thrown out of the Garden of Eden and trying to find our way back. And all of human existence has been a seeking of a return to a utopian existence. Mm. And that's what the Bible basically paints. The Bible paints a description of a world where all human beings will have a, a knowledge of God, will... Uh, will be people who seek God and who know God. And when all human beings see themselves as children of God, it will make all human beings brothers and sisters. And so what we're told is that that will be a time of universal peace. When there's a universal knowledge of God, there'll be universal peace. And that's the the general picture of what Mm. the Tanakh describes. And then it fills it out with more detail, meaning it it gives us a little bit about how that's going to happen. How are we going to have a world where everyone comes to acknowledge God? So what the Tanakh tells us is that that is the role of the Jewish people, meaning that, you know, we're told that Abraham was put into this world to be the progenitor of a nation through whom the entire world's going to be blessed. When God launched the nation of Israel with Abraham, it wasn't just to have a separate people who live by themselves and are not concerned with the rest of the world. He's immediately given a mission that through your nation, through your people, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Mm. And the Bible just keeps on filling this out, that we're told in Exodus 19 that we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah describes us as a light to the nations. Um, you know, we're given the job of being a, a teaching nation, um, and we're here to basically, as Isaiah says, we're to be God's witnesses. And so, we're, we have a role to play in this world. The problem has been that through most of our history, we didn't do much of a good job. Most of our history, we ourselves were not so loyal to following God as an entire nation. There were always a righteous remnant, but as a whole, the nation of Israel never really got its act together. So what the Tanakh prophesies is that at this future age, you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 as the first place it happens. Mm-hmm. We're told that at some point the Jewish people are going to get it. We're going to finally wake up. And it may take a long time, but the Bible promises us that as a nation we're going to turn back to God. We're going to repent. 
And when that happens, you know, as it says in Isaiah 59, that the Redeemer will come to Zion to those who turn from transgression, that the whole process of redemption begins when the Jewish people turn to God. When that happens, God says he's going to restore us to our land. So most of Jewish history has been exile. And God says the exile is going to end when you turn back to me. And so the description of the program here is that the, the prophets speak about the return of the nation of Israel to God. God will restore us to our land. And what happens is once we come back to our land as a restored nation who are now living properly as God's witnesses and as the holy nation and kingdom of priests that we were intended to be, then the Bible says, out of Zion will go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And ultimately, what Isaiah describes in the last chapters, 60 to 61, 62, 63, is that Isaiah tells us that at that time, the nations of the world will come to your light. You're supposed to be a light, a light to the nations. Well, when we're living in our land, living properly, fulfilling our destiny as God's representatives, Isaiah says that's going to basically impact the world. The, 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 the nations of the world will come to your light. And what happens is that the program becomes fulfilled. The nations will turn to God. They'll seek God. They'll become a world of peace. And we reach the utopia. Um, so th that's described in, in hundreds and hundreds of passages. What we do have, though, among those hundreds of passages describing this transformed world, this world where Israel comes back to its land and mm. lives in peace in the land mm. and has the temple rebuilt yes. uh, and we're able to serve as God's witnesses – so there, amongst those, you know, let's say several hundred passages, there are about a dozen that make reference to this special king who will descend from David and who will be the leader of the Jewish people at that time. Now, we find these references to this particular king in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 12. We find him described in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 to 6. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 11. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 18. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 to 30. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. In the book of Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Uh, you know, this is basically where uh, we see those passages. Hang on. If, if I've counted uh, correctly, I've got, I think I've got eight fingers in front of me. You're saying that these, at least these, these eight passages that you just listed off are absolutely concrete. Now, what's critical, I mean, this is very important to understand. I think there are several things that we should just bear in mind when we think about what I've just described. Mm -hmm. First of all, but what I, I have described is something that's clear in the scripture. Mm -hmm. And by clear, you know, we can test clarity. Um, the test for clarity is if everyone agrees. When you have passages over which there's a lot of disagreement, it's not so clear. Sure. Um, but here, basically any serious student of the Bible would agree these are references to the Messiah. And Christians basically will have to take these verses and say, yes, these are about the Messiah. Jesus will fulfill them when he returns. But there's no disputing that these are our messianic prophecies. Mm -hmm. Second thing is to just appreciate that these are it's a description which doesn't hang on one isolated verse in the Tanakh. I mean, I'd feel less comfortable uh, you know, presenting this if I had one verse in the book of Jeremiah and that was it. But we have here, you know, a number of verses that present a consistent picture in, you know, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea, in Zechariah. Um, so the Tanakh does really present, uh, you know, uh, substantiation and corroboration for this picture. And another thing just to remember is that it's a picture, it's, it's a description of the Messiah that can be tested. Uh, it can be empirically verified. You know, one of the things that's peculiar about the Jewish concept of the Messiah mm -hmm. is that you can actually see whether someone fulfilled these prophecies. Yes. You know, you can see, has 
the entire nation of Israel have we returned to our land? Has the temple been rebuilt? Uh, is there peace in the land of Israel? Uh, has peace spread throughout the entire world? You know, Isaiah speaks about universal disarmament. Hosea as well in the second chapter speaks about the destruction of the weapons of war. You can see that. Uh, mm. Has the whole world become monotheistic? Does everyone believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So mm. the descriptions in the Tanakh, you can actually see whether they happened or not. The Christian concept of the Messiah is not empirically verifiable. I mean, the Christian concept is that the Messiah dies for your sins. That's at least for the first coming of Jesus. And you can't tell whether someone died for your sins. That's something you have to accept upon faith. We mm. can know that someone died. You can see that Jesus died. But whether his death atoned for your sins, you can't measure that. You can't test that. You can't see that. Mm. Um, so I think that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I wanted to share two quotes that I, I think are important. One is from a um, book called Hoshua ben David by Walter Riggins. And he's a Christian apologist. He's, mm-hmm. uh, I think he might even be messianic, but he's basically written this long book about uh, the, the tenets of Christianity and proving them to be true. But he makes a very, very amazing admission on page 155 in his book. Um, Walter Riggins says, let me repeat this point. There is no self-evident blueprint in the Hebrew Bible that can be said to unambiguously point to Jesus. He says it's only after one has come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and more specifically, the kind of Messiah that he is, that it all begins to make sense and hang together. So here what he's admitting is that you really can't find any clear picture of Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's only after you already accept Jesus without the Hebrew Scriptures that you can then mm. go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and uh, you know find Jesus with any kind of clarity. I also wanted to make reference to, this may not be a well-known reference, but the previous pope, uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, I think he was Pope Benedict Mm. XVI. So he has a, there's a book of him with a dialogue with, uh, I think, a rabbi or some Jewish person in South America or somewhere called God and the World. And uh, I'm just going to share a few quotes from page 209. He says, it is, of course, possible to read the Old Testament so that it's not directed towards Christ. It does not point quite unequivocally to Christ. And if Jews cannot see the promises as being fulfilled in him, this is not just ill will on their part. There are perfectly good reasons, then, for denying that the Old Testament refers to Christ and for saying, no, that is not what it says. A great part of the purely historical and critical exegesis, likewise, does not read the Old Testament in this sense of pointing the way forwards. It regards the Christian interpretation of it as being inconsistent with the original meaning, or at any rate, as going far beyond it, meaning far beyond the original meaning. That really flies in the face of Paul's veil, really, and puts it on the face of the Christian, does it not? Ooh, that's a sharp critique, Jono. <laughs> oh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think these, but these are statements by honest Christians who are saying that you know what? Let's be honest. Um, the Old Testament does not really clearly point to Jesus, and uh, I think if we're going to derive anything from the Tanakh, um, you know, we do see that it points with tremendous clarity to this descendant of David who will rule as the king of Israel at a time when the world is basically in a utopian state of existence. Mm. And because we're not in that utopian state of existence, we've never been in it, we're still awaiting it to happen, it's quite clear that the Messiah has not yet come. Mm. Um, And I think that it's not so difficult to find... Um, you know, the passages that I uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago, because they're right there. They're black on white. And, Mm. uh, you know, I think that the challenge to Christians is, you know, how do you justify going beyond that list? Meaning, how do you go from that list to the 365 uh, on the list that we've seen, um, you know, where you don't have clarity, you don't have consistency, 
you don't have something that can be empirically verified, uh, you know, you really, you will find that, you know, people like this uh, Mr. Riggins and the Pope are willing to admit that, you know what, uh, we've got a a hard uh, case to sell. Mm. It's not so easy to sell our point of view. There it is. Uh, So just again, uh, for listeners who didn't pause when you read out that list, go back Uh, Listen to Michael uh, go through those again. Just write them down and make sure you do invest the time to familiarize yourself with those passages. There was only eight passages that he read out. And uh, this is what what you say are ironclad, undisputed uh, passages in reference to the person of the King of Israel in the Messianic era. Is that fair? I think that's fair, yes. Beautiful. Thank you, my friend. Rabbi Michael Skoback of JewsforJudaism.ca, JewsforJudaism.ca, where you will find an immense amount of resources and also the YouTube channel there. Uh, so make sure you visit that website and get what you can because there, there really is a lot on offer. Also, can I mention, Michael, uh, as I think we did last year, coming up very, very soon for those in the Toronto area, uh, is the Counter-Missionary Survival Seminar, which you do each year, right? It's a six-week seminar series, and it's free. I can't believe it's free. You do this for free? <laughs> Why? Actually, we do it several times a year. Um, in the past, we've done it three times a year. Um, and for those people who can't schlep all the way to Toronto, it is on our YouTube channel. All the lectures are there for people if they don't mind seeing something on a YouTube video. You don't even have to go to Toronto. How about that? All right. Well, what I'm going to do is I'll put a link to that on this post uh, for the listeners as well. It begins on the 20th of October. Am I right? I do believe it begins there and it runs for... Uh, six weeks. So there you go. Okay. Grant, thank you, my friend, for coming back on the program. Listen, can we do a program sometime in the future uh, based on uh, First Samuel Chaps, right? Why not? I think we can. <laughs> we can do that. Thank you again, Rabbi Michael Skoback at JewsforJudaism.ca, Jews for Judaism in Canada. And until the next program, dear listeners, be blessed, be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.